Hi, I'm Carla Bailo, the President and CEO for the Center for Automotive Research, and welcome to the Car Podcast. There's so many things happening in the in the industry these days, and today we're going to talk about electrification and EVs and market growth, and a little bit about policies and how we can make EVs really available for the middle class. And what about the strategy from the OEM? Some are going hybrid, then leading to electrified. Some are just jumping right in headlong into electrification. What's happening with new and used cars, supply, demand, and how the heck are we going to retrofit all those vehicles sitting on the lots? And we're going to end with a little talk about the new lawsuit that just came out from GM, Blue Cruise versus Super Cruise. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Car Podcast. I'm Carla Bailo, the CEO for the Center for Automotive Research. And I'm Bernard Swicky, the Director of Research. Well, Bernard, as usual, there are so many things happening in the automotive industry. Um, everything from what's happening with semiconductors and what that means for used and, and new cars to, you know, are we still seeing EV sales soaring? A um, lot of announcements in EV world. And... Uh, you know, fundamentally, you know, are we going to see the the hockey stick to EVs as quickly as some think? Um, there's a lot happening. There really is. And, you know, it appears right now there's no end to the hunger for uh, the electric um, market to keep growing. Uh, you know, and it's, what's really interesting to me is that major uh, players in that sphere, Tesla and General Motors, are now past the point where they can offer the full $7,500 rebate, yet continue to have robust sales. And I, I've got a few numbers here that just kind of blew my mind recently. Uh, so far this year, through June, uh, sales of conventional hybrids are up to 168%. Plug-in hybrids are up 139%, and battery electric vehicles are up 119%, uh, which is That's staggering amazing. to me. It really is because these numbers were already rising rapidly last year. Uh, and it's also happening in an environment where gasoline prices are increasing, but not that rapidly. And what that tells me is consumers are actually buying these vehicles because it's the vehicle they want, not because, you know, it's not necessarily the best choice in terms of vehicle characteristics, but it'll save me money at the pump. And I think it's so much more a mature market now than it had been in the past. Well, let's go back to EVs for a minute. And, you know, you mentioned that they're still selling regardless being able to get the rebate. But, heck, we've looked at the data. And people that are buying those cars, they fundamentally don't need the rebate. So in Carlos Tavares's report this morning in Automotive News, he was saying PSA is going to make EVs for the middle class. Finally, we're going to have cars for the middle class. What does that mean? What can the middle class really afford? Isn't it something well below 30000 somewhere in like the used car market, the low 20s? Yeah, absolutely. So, Carla, the latest uh, numbers that I've seen is a median American income for a household of about $60,000 typically buys a 14-year-old used car. And considering that uh, the average car in American roads is now just over 12 years old, that's older than average. Uh, never mind 
buying the latest and greatest. Uh, so I think as an industry, we have an affordability problem, and it really seems to be even greater when it comes to electrified vehicles. And everyone keeps talking about, you know, that magic number of dollars per kilowatt hour. It has to get below 100. Tesla already says they're there. I don't know if that's true or not. At least the price of the vehicle is is certainly not reflecting that. But um, that means we need to have a lot more research into batteries, right? And a lot different materials and a lot more efficiency coming out of there to then really be able to make this um, affordable for the average buyer. So when maybe Carlos is saying something like that, is he actually probably talking about pure battery electric vehicles, or is this including hybrids? And now we have new models coming out where hybrids the only thing you can get. So are, is this customer choice now, or you know, are we perhaps you know, giving the customer no choice and, and therefore they're going with the hybrid? I know it's a controversial thing to say, but I wonder sometimes. Yeah, I mean, it's a great point, Carla. You know, and I think at this point, because we do have, uh, maybe within a given product range, only, only, let's say, a hybrid option to choose from. But that vehicle's competitors may give you conventional options. So the fact that consumers are buying that vehicle, even though a competing automaker has an alternative, uh, to me says, you know, maybe the acceptance is there, that, that people really are able to buy this vehicle with the full confidence that it's going to be as reliable and as durable as a conventional vehicle had been. Uh, but to make them really affordable to the masses, you know, I'm fascinated by this discussion of do we get more bang for our buck out of having a larger part of the market hybrid or a smaller part of the market, but battery electrics that are just purely battery electric. You know, one solution seems a little bit more complex because you do have two different powertrains on that vehicle. But at the same time, each battery cell gives you more environmental usability because there's a greater chance that that buyer will not have to fill up as often and that the electric range will be enough for their commute. So. Those two approaches for me are just fascinating to see play out in the market. And I don't think anyone will be able to answer which one of those philosophies will be better. We just have to see what consumers are actually willing to plunk down the cash for. Well, interestingly enough, I read two reports recently. One came out of ICCT, which is probably one of the most profound organizations talking about electrification and, and the need for car carbon footprint reduction. And in this report, it said regardless how you, how you choose to charge the vehicle, what kind of energy goes into the vehicle, it's still cleaner than an internal combustion engine, regardless. Then interestingly, I saw a report this morning from ACEEE, which is the American Council for an Energy Efficient Economy, talking about what Biden should do in terms of cafe and greenhouse gas. And in that report, it was quite interesting because, first of all, they said he needs to set higher standards than even what Obama had. So the 54.5 needs to be increased if we want to get back on track to meet the Paris Accords. And then further down in that report, it says, and by the way, you shouldn't count all those upstream emissions that go into making the cars or the downstream emissions 
just what comes out of the vehicle itself. And I was really shocked to see that kind of a report because all that adds up to the carbon footprint, does it not? Absolutely it does. And, you know, if the end goal is better care for the environment, I think you have to take all of that into consideration. Otherwise, what's the point of having these vehicles come about um, and be subsidized and incentivized by the government if it isn't in terms of total societal good? So, yeah, absolutely. Um, and Carla, you mentioned a little bit about the Biden administration's policies. A couple of thoughts on that. One is this incredible growth that we're seeing in this market so far this year. This is before any subsidies or any attempts to goose the market that we may yet see. So fasten your seatbelts for what may be coming next. Um, second, as we've been researching and been reading about different scenarios for how all of this is going to come together, we've been talking about the market, but in terms of what the North American automotive industry produces, um, it may be the case uh, that we should do everything we can to accelerate this transition to the highest degree possible. Because what I'm concerned about is right now we have a highly domestically sourced industry when it comes to powertrains, certainly engines and transmissions, for North American produced vehicles are very likely to come from North America. But let's say the transition is slow and we do gradually close the uh, occasional engine or transmission plant and replace it with globally sourced electrified components. And globally sourced because we don't have the volumes right now in North America to produce dedicated plants for North America. You know, and then at some point, years down the road, the market becomes big enough to open that nor those North American plants making these electrified components. And so there's no guarantee at that point uh, that we will have the same share, the same employment, the same economic benefit from that transition happening that way. And so what we'll be doing effectively is going from a domestic supply chain to, for some time, an international supply chain back to domestic. And I think there's real risk that in those transitions, we don't get back what we had to start with. And perhaps accelerating the transition, goosing the market, incentivizing local production, we could go from as much domestic to as much domestic without that interim interna international step being there to sort of dilute what we end up with here in North America. So it might be smarter to actually slow down and study and take a look at the jobs and understand the supply chain better as we move into this, this new industry. And who knows, maybe the customer is going to make us do that anyway. Um, you know, yes, customers are buying more and more EVs, maybe because they've been working from home, haven't been driving so much, realize an EV can fit in their life. But I'd be curious to know, and maybe we should do this research, you know, how many EV buyers is that their only vehicle? It would be really interesting to see that. Um, I know that, uh, you know, I have a place up north in the middle of nowhere. I do see Teslas up there. That's about the only car I see, and that's about the only car, except for some of the ones that are just, you know, launching now, maybe the Mach-E and then eventually the Ford 150, that'll have enough range to go from Detroit up to northern Michigan without having to stop. But, um, you know, I, I'm really curious to see how this momentum keeps up over the next few months and how the automakers 
continue to roll out into their portfolio the different kinds of electrification. Interestingly enough, you know, Toyota has kind of been, I, I don't want to say shamed, but almost shamed because of their logic right now rolling out hybrids, lots of hybrids, um, and then saying electrification will come when the customer's ready for it. I sometimes wonder if, if that may end up being the smart way to go. In the, um, in the automotive news uh, paper this morning, it just showed that in terms of market share, the J3 are now ahead of the, the old big three. And that's partly because of semiconductors and other supply issues. But let's be careful. Our strategy and the speed, I suppose, is what you know, you're trying to say as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we need to keep in mind the end goal which is better stewardship of the environment, right? It's not the, the, the simply numerical goal of selling X number of a given type of vehicle. And if that's the case, we have to remember that right now there is a limited global supply of batteries. And we have to think of where a given battery will make the biggest environmental impact for the positive. Um, and if you know a larger number of hybrids on the road results in fewer greenhouse gas emissions than a smaller number of pure battery electrics, then yes, you could absolutely argue that that is ultimately uh, the better path to what we're trying to accomplish in the first place. If you're not simply stuck on how many sales of what type of vehicle on an actual societal benefit, um, I am very much starting to see the, the logic of the Toyota <laughs> approach here. Yeah. You know, yesterday I was at Concours d'Elegance. Did you have a chance to go by? Uh, unfortunately, no. I just got back from uh, an international trip, so <laughs> recovery is still underway. <laughs> I get that. Um, you know, when I worked at Nissan, we used to say, we used to fly to Japan all the time, so we gave nobody any slack. You know, you just, you landed and you came in the office. That was it. But those, uh, that was not easy, and, and certainly we're not all hardwired to do that. But um, Concours d'Elegance, you know, there's... There weren't any EVs there. Um, and these were all hardcore, um, you know, people who loved old cars, right? And there were, all, there were all kinds. And unfortunately, because of the rain, they couldn't park out where they normally do in the golf course. It had to be on the parking lot. So, um, you know, as I was sitting there, I had this really strange thought as I was walking around that maybe this is the only way you're going to have fun with internal combustion engines in the future, only at auto shows that you have to, I mean, tickets weren't cheap. They were $35 a person. Stroll around, look at the cars, maybe eventually being in a closed circuit and being able to drive the car. And, you know, when we move into more of electrification and automation, maybe these are the events that are going to allow you to actually feel the thrill of driving again. I, it was the strangest thought that I had while I was there. And also, you know, it was expensive. People were all dressed up. It was whole different experience, kind of like going horseback riding, you know, back in the day or going to watch horse races or whatever. Expensive. Just switching gears a little bit to what's happening in supply. I heard this morning that at least in used cars, we're starting to see some easing, that we're starting to get used car inventory creeping back up a little bit. And I'm not sure if it's because those things that are on the lot people don't want or if those people who actually needed a car have now purchased it and now the rest are saying, I can wait till I have more choices. 
And then I also heard um, some of the dealers talking about those cars that have been sitting on the lots for three months or longer waiting for parts. And they're saying, wait a second, I don't want these cars. And if I were a customer, I certainly wouldn't want it. And we need to have transparency into those build dates and actual finish dates. And was it finished in a dealer or was it finished in the factory? And I'm not sure the, the customer has visibility to that, but... It, it seems there's risk. There's risk in the profit wave we've been riding, and now it's kind of hitting perhaps a guardrail. But maybe your numbers will tell me something no, different. So, Carla, I think you touched on a very important point uh, that's been a concern of mine for months now, uh, which is the thousands of unfinished vehicles that have been sitting in lots around the country. You know, I'm happy to see that a lot of automakers are balancing their incoming semiconductor supply between newly made vehicles at the assembly plant and the unfinished ones that they had been sitting around because, quite frankly, if we waited until the semiconductor situation had been resolved to finish those vehicles, we were risking flooding the market with older vehicles that had been sitting there that would have a massive negative impact on vehicle pricing. So at least on an industry level, the fact that we're easing into that as opposed to doing it in one fell swoop, I think mitigates some of that negative impact, um, which is good for the industry. But as a buyer, absolutely right now, I'd be a little bit careful about, you know, what is the history of that vehicle? Had it been sitting around, um, if it has been finished um, Afterward, you know, was it finished, as you mentioned, at the dealership? In some cases, these vehicles are run through the assembly plant a second time, and those components that didn't go in the first time are added. And, you know, will we see different quality levels down the road based on how that vehicle was finished? And right now, we don't know, right? We need those vehicles to be on the road a certain amount of time before we see how that comes to pass. And we've really never had an example in the industry where we had these developments on this wide a scale before. So we're a little bit in uncharted territory here, and I think it's a little bit difficult to tell what to expect from this going forward. We're going to have to really see what kind of protocols the automakers put in place, right? Because we know what the quality is when something comes off the assembly line. We have very robust processes, very robust tracking. But if you're going to let that vehicle sit and then come back and get taken apart and parts installed, there's not really a good playbook for that. Not saying, you know, the automakers won't make it. They will. I mean, just like, you know, they quickly pivoted with uh, COVID to make PPE and ventilators. I mean, it's just amazing the, the engineering might that the companies have. But to do that reliably and repeatedly, depending on the different facilities, we know that's always a challenge, and it's something that's not been done before, and heck, it's probably not even the same semiconductors on each vehicle. The other thing that I, I think is quite interesting to study is some of these specs that the automakers are selling now have been changed. So a certain grade used to have this computer screen, now it has this other computer screen resale has to be impacted, right? And at the end of the day, you know, a consumer is going to look at, hey, I have a model year 2021, this spec, it should be worth this. But 
I don't have XYZ that it was supposed to have. So it's going to come in somewhere down here, and they paid a premium probably for that car. So I, the thing that keeps bubbling up in my mind is, you know, what is this going to do for consumer satisfaction and brand loyalty at the end of the day if you don't handle it properly? Yeah, you know, and Carla, I would add to that the fact that um, even if the industry had a really good handle on all of this, we have to keep in mind consumers are not always rational. Uh, and a lot of that vehicle purchase decision is based on emotional factors. And that's, you know, that's always been a bit of a wild card in trying to design or market a given vehicle. And my goodness, it seems like there's so much more potential for it to be a factor when it comes to these particular vehicles. Yeah, indeed. I, th I think, you know, the, the consumer is going to, to need to be thinking twice in the future. And we'll learn something. I mean... I hate to use this word because we use it so often, but we're in an unprecedented situation. So you heard it. I, I hate to say it, but it's, it's, it's a word that fits in this case. And only time will tell, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, just to put a few numbers to the conversation here, you mentioned prices had been dropping a bit, and they absolutely have. Uh, however, if you compare ourselves to July a year ago, uh, prices are still about 25% higher. Uh, so that's amazing. And we complain about, you know, 5% at the grocery store, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all this is all this inflation is going to impact sales, will it not? I mean, people need to put food on the table first. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, no. And for many years, we've been looking at the consumer basket of goods, you know, what in a given individual's or a given household's budget competes with vehicle payment, um, you know, in terms of you know, food and housing and medical costs and so on. And automotive is not the only part of that equation that is getting more expensive. So the part of the automotive purchase that is discretionary may be negatively impacted. And, you know, will we see folks be a little bit more sober in those purchases, maybe buy a different vehicle, maybe go used, uh, or maybe buy that same vehicle, but with fewer options on the hood? And right now, with prices nearly 25% higher, that little bit of relief we're seeing, it's difficult to think that it's really going to move the needle for the average household. What do you think? You know, if I were going to buy a used car now, I would start looking at private owners. Um, and I wonder how much of an impact that's having right now on so, uh, in some of these numbers that the you know cars are coming back to the dealer. Dealers are sending out letters now saying, hey... In fact, I got one for a 2008 Malibu that my daughter bought ages ago, and we sold it to, you know, my other uh, daughter's family, and it's it's really, really on its last legs. And they were telling us how much they'd pay for that car, and I thought, oh, for heaven's sakes, that's about four times more than I thought it was worth. So you got dealers sending out, you know, please turn in your vehicle, and then, you know, Buying it off the market from somebody else has always been a little bit scary without any guarantee or anything. But all of this is going to have an impact on, on the numbers and availability. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Carla, the latest number that I've seen is that the inventory of used cars available in America at this point is about 5% below what it was last year. And you have to keep in mind the differences because last year we were really mid-pandemic and, you know, the desire for people to go buy these vehicles was much lower. And that's not the case, at least for the time being. 
at this point this year. So when you add those two things together, 5% lower vehicle inventory, plus a very different economy, that's really difficult to see things sort of improving, shaping up in a positive direction anytime soon. Yeah, and if you've traveled lately and tried to rent a car, boy, did my eyes get wide open recently. We had a, we have a trip coming up in September, and you know I went to my normal website, and it was well over $100 a day to get a car. And um, we actually ended up buying one of those, you know, you get that big question mark, the mystery car, because we didn't care you know, what car we had, and, and I probably shouldn't say that, but we really didn't, and uh, it was the only thing that was halfway reasonable was the mystery car, so I mean, it, what I'm trying to kind of talk about here is just inflation, how it's now hitting every single part of our lives, I think it'll be really interesting to see, you know, now they're saying we might even have shortages for school supplies, and, you know, things that, you know, typically you've got so many in the store, you can pick whatever you want. So, um, you know, and, and all of these shortages lead to inflation. So um, it's going to have an impact. It's going to continue to have an impact in supply and wages. So we, I guess here at CAR, we have to keep looking at that and seeing what impact that's going to have. So, Bernard, let's end and talk just for a minute or two about the latest lawsuit filed by GM on against Ford for Blue Cruise versus Super Cruise. And um, it's interesting because we've called cruise cruise control for years and years and years, and nobody has that trademarked. Um, I know GM has filed to trademark Super Cruise, but is it is it better to have different names and confuse the consumer what these things are, or is it better to have similar names so they expect similar performances? This is the question I keep asking myself, and I kind of fall in the latter. Let's stop confusing the customers about what these things mean, and who cares what you call it, you know, as long as it's a great system that works well and keeps people safe. Yeah, you know, Carla, when I saw this subject come up in terms of the recognition uh, and the value that consumers put behind a given brand name, not of the vehicle itself, uh, but of a component or a technology of the vehicle. You know, I thought of the early days of the industry where we had things like Body by Fisher, where there was maybe a little bit more of a concern about not just what is the brand of the vehicle itself, but of somehow how it's comprised of a given vehicle or technology. And, you know, I wonder, are we headed back there again? And I also wonder what guidance we can get from electronics, you know, in terms of cell phone operating systems and other technologies. Are consumers going to start applying some of those principles to vehicle technologies that they do to the electronics on their cell phones and other parts of their house? Yeah, perhaps. You know, I didn't really think about it in terms of cell phones and, you know, even in my house, the big debate about Android and iOS, right? Which is better, which is worse. And, but we don't really think of it in terms of Android or iOS. You know, it's how does it operate? Is it easy or not? Can we understand it? Um, so yeah, I think it's gonna be interesting to see what happens as we go forward with the way we name things. I've always been an advocate of let's simplify it. Let's keep it simple so people understand. And as we've come out with more and more ADAS technologies, we continue to name it different things. And unfortunately, as we know, too many people are turning them off because 
they give them false positives or they don't understand how they work. And as an industry, I think we have to really care about that and, and think about how we can make it simple for the customers to, again, keep them safe. That's what we want to do. Yep, absolutely. You know, already now, as you mentioned, consumers are not using the full range of the options that are available in their vehicle. And that's only going to be more of a concern as these technologies become more commonplace, as they multiply, and as they become more critical to vehicle safety. Because then you've got a whole other element of importance to it, you know, beyond just convenience or customization. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got a real societal uh, issue behind that situation. Uh, so I wonder how much the automotive industry can pull some wisdom from other industries to give us a bit of guidance here so we're not fully in the dark as we make some of these decisions. Yeah, I think that's that's probably true, and I hope that we can really keep the customer's, customer's best you know, outcome in our in our minds as we go forward, and hopefully they can get somebody to arbitrate this instead of, you know, always suing each other. Um, so on that note, I think it's a wrap for this week. We've talked about, you know, what's happening with new and used cars. We beat electrification to death, and more to come on that as we learn more. I mean, this is, this is a topic that we're just going to keep chatting about. And then a little bit about brand identity and what does it mean for these nomenclatures and how can we do a better job of educating our consumer base. Signing off, Carla Bello. And Bernard Swicky. Thanks so much.